I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the psychotherapist Noel McDermott. Like so many people in his profession, Noel decided to train as a therapist after suffering from his own mental health problems. Having experienced PTSD, he then went into recovery for addiction issues and has been sober now for many years. Since 1996, he's been trying to help others get better. Noel's a popular spokesperson on mental health matters across the British media and has his own podcast, The Wellbeing Show, which you can find on YouTube. I was a recent guest on that show and found talking to Noel so enjoyable and educational that I immediately invited him onto the reset. So for a change, it's Noel answering questions about his own life today. His story is very inspirational and his years of experience in counselling and therapy have filled him with all sorts of invaluable wisdom. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Noel, welcome to the reset. Thanks for inviting me on, Sam. It's good to see you again, actually. Good to see you too, mate. Um, so I, I've been on your podcast. I've you know read read a lot about your work and and so forth. But what what about you, mate? How did you um, become interested in uh, psychotherapy in the first place? What led you down this path? Um, I, I suppose because I needed it myself more than anything else. To be honest, like a lot of people, I think you get into uh, this field. Um, so my background as a kid I come from uh I suppose I would say lump from proletariat Irish immigrant family really uh, my mum was from Dublin my dad was from a a place not far outside of Dublin called um Newbridge which is a very pretty small town um and um they both came from sort of significant trauma and poverty and uh, my mum Definitely. Her family were sort of smack bang in the troubles. Her dad was um, very 
disturbing and very disturbed guy, I would say. Um, I didn't meet him very often, thankfully. I sort of <laughs> don't have that many memories of my grandfather, uh, and I'm glad about that when it comes mm-hmm. down. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they, they came from troubled times, my mum in particular. Um, my dad, um, he died recently, and I'm very grateful I was able to show compassion towards him dying, but he, he was a very disturbed guy, to be honest. Um, sort of uh, drank too much, violent, all that sort of stuff, really. And um, so it was quite a troubled childhood. Uh, until my mum ditched him, and um, quite rightly so. Um, I actually got involved with another bloke, Alf, my stepfather, who was a really, really nice bloke. And um, sort of, so the second half of my childhood was much more stable with him around, actually. Um, I liked Alf a lot. I learned a lot from him in my teen years, I think, and that was really helpful um, to me, sort of coming into my manhood. Um, but I uh, inherited some stuff from my dad around the drinking. So um, we were a family that drank a lot. But, you know, I stood out as somebody who had um, significant drinking issues, which continued for much of my adult life, really. Um, my way out of all the troubles was school and in particular um was um the arts in school and and i focused on theater that was sort of really um i think what saved me in many ways i don't want to be dramatic about it but it was certainly allowed me to have um explore different aspects of myself that were just not available in terms of my relationships at home so um, i was able to explore characters and um, new people and keep my internal life rich and interesting and also school I was good at school um, mm. it was great I it was a very predictable environment very rule bound I knew what I had to do to get approval I knew what would happen in, um, what behaviours would lead to disapproval so it was all very predictable unlike home which was very messy and chaotic and unpredictable and frightening so Essentially, I spent as much time at school as possible, which right. was turned out to be pretty good for me in the end. Yeah. Um, and then it was the arts, actually, that led me into psychological therapies. And um, so let's see, where was I? I was I went to university as an undergraduate, but my drinking and drugging got the best of me, so I didn't make it through. But I ended up... Um, moving into theatre um, after got thrown out as an undergraduate and um, started a career in theatre, which lasted a while. I made a living out of it, to be honest, which is unusual for theatre. <laughs> and um, so I paid the bills, such as they were, and I ended up getting involved in community arts, community theatre, and then I started work with projects that were using the arts to help people with complex needs and I ran out of skills that was it and there were quite a few people on those projects who had um, qualified in the arts therapies in particular and I met a drama therapist who um, truth is I fancied her that was the truth (laughs) and um, 
but also I thought she was pretty smart cookie around what she was doing. I thought a lot of the people I met who trained in psychological therapies were idiots, to be honest, and um, probably says more about me, but I just didn't understand them. They spoke in this really weird language. It was like a, it felt like a cult type thing. <laughs> they were sort of using words I didn't understand, but this woman, she didn't. She was pretty down to earth. Um, and we had a chat about the course she'd done. Um, and I phoned the course up, uh, bless them. And they said, yeah, we've got an open day, come along. And I went along to this open, what I thought was an open day. And I just had a laugh, I really enjoyed it. And then the bloke at the end interviewed me. I didn't realise an interview, I just thought it was a chat. He said, so why do you want to be a therapist? And I was like, I don't. <laughs> he said, why are you here? I said, oh, well, and I just told him the story. They went, okay. Yeah. And uh, to his credit, I mean, again, it was really down to earth. And he just said, okay, well, what did you think of the day? What did you like? What did you dislike? What would you do if you were on the course? I know you haven't decided, but um, give us your views on it. And we had a good chat. Um, and they invited me on the course. That's literally how it happened. And um, that could be a metaphor for my life. That's how my life happens, to be honest. What sort of a uh, not fully planned, but things not fully planned, following my heart, dynamic, yeah. creative, that sort of stuff, you know. Um, and um, I'm lucky I seem to land on my feet. There you go, that's that's one way of saying it, I suppose. Did you, uh, and at that stage, had you undergone any therapy yourself? <laughs> I'd done some. Yeah, a little bit, but not much. It hadn't been successful. But as part of the course, they required you to be in therapy. So I then started on a a bit of a journey. Uh, and my partner at the time, my ex, as she is now, um, I don't know if I should admit this, but um, I, due to sort of the severity of the childhood, I struggled a lot with depression in particular as well as the drinking and stuff like that um so I was in a dark place in many ways and I got light relief when I did theatre to be honest I could be other people not me and I was always looking to not be me because being me was too painful um and looking back I would say I had PTSD to be honest um and it wasn't a word I'm old and it wasn't really a word that we understood of that much or used in those days um and um this ex of mine she said um actually what she did was introduce me to mdma um and i'd messed myself up on drugs as an undergraduate and avoided them so i thought drinking would be safe um as, as people do but so it wasn't but there you go um and uh but she did she introduced me to mdma i only ever had one tab and I had this strange feeling on it and, and this strange contorted look on my face, which just went something like this. <laughs> and I wasn't used to that contorted smile thing. I didn't smile very much. And um, and I said, I feel really strange. He said, you know what that is now? She said, it's happiness. And I went, oh, oh, right. I've heard, I've heard tell of that strange thing. <laughs> So, and actually, it was really interesting, and it's it's sort of why the drug was invented. Mm. Um, I'm not suggesting people use it recreationally; it's a dumbass thing to do. But it was actually invented in 
relationship therapy and was invented as a tool to help people experience feelings that they had lost hold of like love for their partner or mm-hmm. happiness so they were chronically depressed um and um and so it gave me an emotional reference point for some work i wanted to do which was i wanted to deal i suppose at that point i thought about getting rid of the depression i wouldn't think about it in those times now. um but really it was to learn how to be happy i hadn't been taught how to be happy at all um so that was um i'm very grateful to her for that um for starting me on that journey and i would still see myself as part of that sort of um that my one of my core goals is to continue to work in a way that i'm happy Mm. so it sort of gave you a glimpse of a feeling that you didn't know existed and you thought, yeah. I wonder, oh, so that's that's attractive. I wonder if there are other ways that don't involve substances that I could achieve this. You, 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 you'd grown up in a sense you didn't think happiness was is not something you're familiar with or had an option of. No, not at all. I mean, it, it was I, I, I was really uncomfortable inside myself, and so, like up until that point, that there might be a better alternative hadn't occurred to me, and my sort of the way I organised my life was to try to not feel because mm. the feelings I had were difficult and uncomfortable. Um, and that was why I drank, really, was to get to a numbed-out state um, or to shift my emotional state so it was less painful. That was it. And this sort of event um, gave me a sense that um, that there was an, a, an alternative option um and that combined with the personal therapy that i'd started and the training as a therapist began to put in place a whole bunch of stuff um that was beginning to indicate um an alternative sort of way of being um but it has to be said i was still drinking you know far too much for any of it to really um hit home and it wasn't until i stopped drinking which was like a decade later that um all of that stuff really made sense but uh, i was part of my journey was that's how i got to the point where i could contemplate not drinking and and how did that come about was that a matter of did you hit crisis did you have to go through recovery or was it a well it's, it's interesting I mean I the way I think about it is that I you know I was 41 42 when I stopped drinking I, it was happened I was admitted to a rehab in the December of 2008 and does, it, does this make sense yeah for I became 42 yeah that was it something like that and um uh really it hadn't occurred to me i could stop drinking because it was so normal i've been drinking since a child all through my adult life and it hadn't really occurred to me um that not drinking was just a simple decision i could make Mm. it was very complicated in my head but actually in in the rehab it was uh, made very straightforward for me it's just a decision decide not to drink um, and just live with that and see what happens. As it happens, I'm one of the lucky people that um, 
although I had to be medically detox, and I'd just like to highlight that because I was highly dependent on alcohol. It's quite a dangerous drug to just suddenly stop. So mm-hmm. if you are heavily drinking, I would suggest to people you get a medical assessment of and stop. So, you know, they gave me some benzodiazepines for three days so that I didn't die of a heart attack, basically. Um, and um, when I woke up from that, as it were, I came off the benzies. Um, I was happy literally and it was just great for me um and there was no turning back i'm just one of those very lucky people that i embraced being sober and uh it worked immediately for me i got immediate benefits such as no longer wanting to kill myself (laughs) i sort of (laughs) lived with these horrific thoughts for a long time and um and i told myself and like this was after a decade of personal group therapy i mean um I stopped and all that stuff that all the work I'd done clicked into place really. Um, so it wasn't just simply I stopped. I mean, I'd had a decade of lots of personal work, but the drinking was um, maintaining an old version of myself that I kept telling myself was true. When I stopped drinking, oh, that's not true anymore. It was just like that. Wow. So it was, you know, and I remember day four, it was in the middle of a bitter winter and uh, there was ice underneath the branches of the trees mm. looking out of the window. Um, and it was a beautiful sunrise caught, reflected through the ice that was lining the branches of the trees. Absolutely gorgeous. And then I got that strange feeling again that I'd had on MDA, MDMA once. Oh, I got it without drugs and without drink, and it was just Mother Nature sort of offering me um, uh, some happiness. Um, and um, and I oh, right, and yeah. that was it for me in terms of um, not drinking. And I'm, you know, I know I'm not going to drink again. I don't have any sort of voodoo worries about saying that. Some people get really anxious yeah. about, that, but it's. No, it's fine. Um, it's it's been only sort of of benefit to me. It's not everybody's story, but that was definitely my story that I got immediate benefits. But I got the immediate benefits, I think, because I put the work in as well, um, yeah. and uh, I continued to put the work in after that, um, and I continued to take sensible advice. I remember the psychiatrist at this place saying to me, "Take these tablets. They were SSRIs." So take them for a couple of years and then they stop being of any use. But for the first couple of years of your recovery, take those. It'll help balance your brain out so that all the messing about you've done with it, with the various chemicals you put inside it, this will stop you having a depressive relapse. Use it prophylactically is what he... And that made sense. And I went, okay, I'll do that. And then they also said things like um, go to peer support meetings, which I did, just did it. Yeah. Um, and I did the suggestions in those peer support meetings. I didn't, you know, because I enjoyed being sober uh, and I, my reference point for not being sober was horror. This was quite pleasant. And also I have to say that although I was high functioning as a professional and all that sort of stuff, a lot of the ordinary everyday stuff around social interaction, I didn't have a Scooby about. Right. And yeah. so 
yeah, I didn't really know how to just have a conversation with people. Um, I overthought everything. Um, I wasn't relaxed and comfortable in my skin, even though I was, you know, out of the suicidal thoughts and the depression, uh, all of that lifted. But just um, having an easygoing life was not something I'd practiced. Uh, and the peer support groups, you know, gave me a space in which to practice all those social skills I'd missed out on, to be honest. And um, I found that I'm eternally grateful for that. Yeah. I moved me away from the intensity that I was in into a much more easygoing, relaxed space, which is certainly uh, easier going on me. And I think easier going on the people around me as well, which is there's a win win there. The, the one of the things that you're saying that that moment where you saw the the light on on the ice, you know, reminds me of that. I had a sort of a, they call it a pink cloud, don't they? A moment I, I was on a train, maybe like only a week or two into my sobriety, and I was looking out at the sky and the fields and the sheep in the fields, and I got this rush of kind of excitement and wonder about it. Um, and I and I always remember that that moment as it. And and what's similar is is this idea that when people hear you talking about oh how great life is in sobriety, I think they often think that we've become smug and we've just become so into like I don't know like something very wholesome like oh I'm really into hiking now or whatever it is you know. Mm. But the the truth is, and the way you describe it so well is it it sort of suddenly opens your eyes to the things around you. Yeah. that are already there and are already sources of joy and pleasure. But somehow alcohol has switched you off from and you sort of, and I don't know whether it's like a case of, do you think alcohol sort of tells us like a controlling partner, you, forget all that stuff, that's all shit. The only way you can have fun or forget your worries is with me. And then suddenly you stop and you look around and you think, Jesus, there's stuff all around me that is amazing every day. Mm. Um, it's interesting i had um it's an ex-supervisor of mine clinical supervisor who described it like this which i think is the nice way of thinking about it said um uh relating to drugs and alcohol is relating to death and then when you stop doing that you start relating to life mm. and um life is preferable in my experience to death yeah um, and um, that's all. Um, and that stuff of, I mean, I, I suppose my remembrance of that time was um, obsessively um, focused on every sort of um, tiny detail of my internal processes was my experience of using. I was absolutely obsessed by every microsecond of experience inside me. Mm. And I missed everything else. Yeah. And now it's a much more balanced version of me, which is, yeah, I notice what's going on inside me, but I don't overly attach to it. And there's a lot of stuff outside of me that has not. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Nothing to do with me, but that brings me, you know, interest and pleasure. And there's stuff that I'm intimately connected to outside of me, like my son, for example, that brings me great joy as well as at times great fear. And uh, but it's outside of me, and I'm I'm not just constantly ruminating on every single and I used to be the way I you know I used to have this thing about relationships with people and this is when I was still using right and um I, I think of it as the it was a salami slice you know salami slice yeah then you cut off yeah. tiny bits of meat and you make that piece of sausage last forever and I did that with my interactions with people so I'd maybe meet somebody for literally two or three minutes, but I'd spend hours afterwards salami slicing that meeting. Yeah. yeah. Thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner and obsessively going through and inspecting those slices and so for every minute detail. And that's how I lived my life. And it was like, I mean, that's not alive, is it? That's not really living alive because and now when I... I meet people, you know, I could spend hours with people in a comfortable, like I spend time with my son. There's nothing we like better than just being in the same room. And I couldn't tell you what we've done. There's no yeah. obsessive focus on it. It's just we've spent time together. We're comfortable. We're happy. He's doing his stuff. I'm doing my stuff. And these we yeah. have these beautiful experiences. And he said it brilliantly once. He was, what, a seven or something, like a seven-year-old teaching me about life. But there you go. Um, I'm not proud. I'll take it. <laughs> we we're on a beach, and um, and we walked off the beach. And he sat down. He said, "This is good, quiet." And we yeah. sat in quiet together, me and this seven-year-old yeah. boy. We both really enjoyed it. You mm. know, quiet. I don't, I don't know if you've if you haven't had quiet. If you've had a really noisy internal world, which I've had for mm. many many years, mm. having a quiet one is such a gift it really is having quiet and being able to just sit there with it i mean certainly when i was younger and i was still drinking and using i was if i'd been quiet i would have got panicked because i would have thought <laughs> well quiet is the moment at which the kind of thoughts the scary thoughts start creeping in and so my first instinct would have been how can we fill this silence how can we kind of you know liven this up but it's a beautiful feeling when you're with someone and you can just both sit there and or be alone and do it. And yeah. it's nice. It's a nice feeling when you can notice yourself doing that and think, God, this is a big change from the old me. I can just sit here. Um, why do you think people, because the way that it, it happened for you, sobriety sounds wonderful, but like you say, you're one of the lucky ones and 
Um, I can relate. I personally can relate to your experience in a lot of ways, but I also have seen a lot of mates and people I'm close to not not able to sort of see all the things that you saw. What What do you think from your experience of working with people? You know, are, are the big reasons where people don't they can't stick with it? It doesn't work for them. What do you you know? What What are the reasons for that that you see most commonly? There's there's a lot of reasons, and I think one of the main reasons it's not often talked about is undiagnosed other issues. Mm. So ADHD is a big one. Mm. You see a lot of people getting treated for addiction um, who've actually got ADHD. They may have both. Same with autism, autistic spectrum disorder. So those types of congenital issues, you know, where people have neurodiversity or other sort of significant issues like that that are undiagnosed um, and they're using substances to try and manage it um, as well as a plethora of sort of the more severe mental health problems I mean I really admire people that manage multiple comorbidities like that so mm-hmm. I, I know a number of people who have for example bipolar disorder and uh, and also are managing recovery from substances and um and that's complex stuff Mm. Um, another major factor i think is undiagnosed trauma i'm not a great fan of some of the people online who say all addiction is about trauma i'm not Mm. (laughs) whatever Mm. Um, but there's a significant portion of people who come from uh experiences that are living in sort of uh, trauma symptoms and um would benefit from really good help around that and there's plenty of good help emdr etc so that's another major factor um and um i'd like with me as well i think there's there's a significant cohort of people who just you know that they grew up in this stuff and it's that normal, and it's really difficult to get out of thinking outside the box for them. Um, and they're caught up in social, familial situations that are really difficult to break away from. I suppose the main thing I would say is that, um, you know, some people, it's really sad that they can't get it. And that's what it is. It's not a failing. It's just really sad. And I have a lot of compassion for them. I would also say there's other models at work which are just as valuable. So I work a lot in harm reduction and harm minimization. And that's just as valuable um, as abstinence-based approaches and actually are often more successful with people that have comorbidities. So the aims and outcomes and goals shift to reducing the damage um and reducing the damage is just as good just yeah. as good and it really we shouldn't be judging this stuff in not that you are but i'm just saying making a point about mm. it mm. that there are you know it's there's a spectrum of experience in terms of how and why people are misusing and there's a spectrum of responses um and also i would say these days that the way i view this stuff particularly alcohol is that we're looking more and more about it as a 
health issue as opposed to an addiction versus not addiction issue. Um, and uh, those of us, I would say, you know, that uh, I need abstinence as part of my life. Um, but it would have been interesting to see sort of if there had been effective interventions when I was younger, for example, that had suggested moderation or a health approach and rather than an on-off. Because yeah. sort of, um, you know, abstinence-based approaches are sort of on-off. You know, you're, mm. you switch it off, you stay on the wagon. People talk about it, you're on the wagon, that's it, you know. Um, and there are a multiplicity of approaches and ways of thinking about it, which are not that binary um, and are incredibly valuable. So, for example, I'll give you an example. of There's been a public health programme aimed at young people since 2015, which has significantly reduced alcohol use problems within the population, mm. you know, significantly reduced by looking at their prevention strategies and uh, getting on the bandwagon, if you like, of health and well-being, which is out there at the moment. It's a great bandwagon to be part of, I would thoroughly. And understanding uh, alcohol from a health perspective as opposed to this simplistic binary addiction alcoholism versus something else so i'm a great advocate of those approaches and uh allowing people to make rational decisions really about i mean i could imagine had i kind of grasped that sort of stuff at a much younger age it, it could have been effective for me and perhaps i could have been a more measured moderate drinker but the truth is is that most people only are driven to address their drinking once they hit some sort of crisis by which stage very often moderation is sort of not not really plausible uh, it's not it, the truth anymore though sam that's the point about this new work by the government I'm sorry to cut across you but yeah, since 2015 we've been using a public health approach around alcohol yeah. and alcohol usage by young people in that cohort has dropped off by 20 percent so yeah. It's actually the evidence is it's actually effective. It's not effective for you and me because we're old farts, right? Yeah. And we and it is a progressive problem, and it's a problem that if you train your brain into something and it becomes habituated in you, it becomes part of your personality. Right? Yeah, that's the truth, and it's not because addictive personalities exist you're not born with it, but you train yourself into it because of your life circumstances. But if you choose a different approach it, it, at a population level, it's really, really effective. So it's um, cultural change, really, as really well. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really working. I mean, the figures mm. are like in Britain, the figures for smoking cigarettes and alcohol just went like that mm. amongst people. It's amazing. They're, they're doing so incredible. Educating people at an earlier age before things get really? out Really? It works. Yeah. It's yeah. massive, the impact. And again, that's why I say, these, these things need to be looked at in a spectrum of experience and interventions. Mm, mm. Um, and it's it's the risk for somebody like me who went past any of those moderated approaches is yeah. that I think that nobody can. That's not true. Yeah, The vast majority of people are fine because these the approaches that I'm in, and I guess you're in as well, um, are successful for about 10 to 12 percent of people mm, mm. 
we tend to think because it's successful for us that it's successful for everybody it's not i mean it's a, quite a niche market to be honest yeah and the other approach is pick up everybody else so i think it's just really important to sort of be open to that and then to say to people like you and me don't be a dumbass just stop <laughs> yeah well i think it's like if you're in crisis and you're per- past the perfect per certain point then you Without. don't have as many options but what would be much better is if you exactly. can prevent people from ever getting to that stage. At, at, yeah. at, at, so, you know, what I'm saying is if there's people listening who feel like they might be in a crisis, that they've gone past the point at which they can control their drinking, yeah. you know, then then perhaps moderation is going to be difficult to practice. But society is going to be better if we continue these public health you know, campaigns yeah. that you've talked about where whereby a lot of us, old farts like us, might not have got into that. I mean, on a very simple level, we were growing up in an era where going out and getting pissed was considered perhaps the yeah. only form of, yeah. like, sort of uh, entertainment and also a perfectly legitimate and fairly harmless one. <laughs> I mean... I remember going to nightclubs... I remember going to nightclubs at 13 years old, mate going in and getting trashed in them because my sisters worked in the nightclubs and so I'd get in the bouncer to let me in. Nobody batted an eyelid. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was normal. It was absolutely normal. In some parts of the UK it still is, but I think that normal is changing and that's a good thing. Um, but you're right. The, there's got to be a clarity about the way I think about it is this. People have the incorrect framing for asking. They ask the wrong questions of themselves. Um, and the question around your substance misuse, your alcohol misuse, shouldn't be, is it bad enough for me to stop? Um, because that's more like, I think of it as a sort of beyond a reasonable day. You know the difference between criminal justice and civil justice. So in criminal justice sort of courtrooms, it's beyond a reasonable day, which is a very high bar very high bar for evidence right so beyond so there's no possible reasonable doubt but that it's the truth what that looks like in your life is your life's a wreck <laughs> that's yeah. what beyond a reasonable doubt looks like right but yeah. in civil cases it's on balance of probabilities right which is a much lower evidentiary bar now on balance of probabilities in these questions means that there's quite a lot of indicators that you will reach a really bad place if you keep going in the direction you're going. And that balance of probabilities are things like, well, you know, in my case, for example, yeah, it's a long history of these problems in my family. I come from a traumatic background. I come from poverty. Um, there's abnormal drinking in my family. On balance of probabilities, if I drink under those circumstances or anybody drinks under those circumstances, on balance of probabilities is I'm going to be a real mess. Mm. Right. And so using that approach on balance probabilities, it's a reasonable decision to stop earlier. And I know somebody who became abstinent after one night out drinking, using that thinking. And they were 18 when they went into abstinence. And their balance probabilities, they had two parents who were in um, abstinence-based recovery. Um, they went out one night drinking and were an absolute wreck, were a mess and frightened mm. themselves with it. And they made a rational decision that on balance probabilities, that's where I'm headed with my drinking. Yeah. So I think I'll stop. Yeah. 
eight to eight, and they just made a rational decision. Stop. And the reality is that person's life and my life with that drink uh, only got better. Yeah. And even with people who are not coming to those types of conclusions, there's very little to uh, there's very little positive press around drinking. There's very little positive press, and from a health perspective, the health consequences of drinking are immediate at tiny amounts. Mm. Mm. So you massively increase your risk of cancer. Um, you, because of where drinking is consumed, you massively increase your risk of rape, violence, robbery, all sorts of things. Because mm. you get yeah, amongst people who are doing that stuff. Um, there's a direct link between violence and alcohol because it affects people's amygdala and their threat mechanisms. Um, so that's why there's so much violence associated with alcohol, et cetera, et cetera. So once you start looking at those broader risks, um, there's rational reasons why you'd stay the hell away from the stuff, which has got nothing to do with whether you're an addict at all. You don't have to wait till you're an addict. Like yeah. I, I ask this question, like I say to a young woman, for example, would you consider this as a possibility in your life? Going on a Friday night at 9.30, going to a pub you don't know and just having a quiet drink, would that rationally make sense to you or if you look at all the various risks associated to you mm. as a young one on your own going into a pub? It's like, no, there's no way I would do that. And so once you start to look at it like that, it's like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. It makes sense to stay away from the stuff because yeah. it's pretty toxic when it yeah. comes down to it. on every level just lastly uh no it's been wonderful speaking to you about all this stuff just just in terms of therapy generally this this is a a, a podcast that is aimed mainly at men and and i think a lot of the listeners are the sort of guys who might be you know they might feel like they're struggling but as we know you know a lot of men are not hostile to, but sceptical or nervous about the idea of, of therapy. And they think it might not be for them. And they think it might be full of kind of psychobabble or off-putting things. What's your advice for men who might be might be struggling and not sure that they're ready to go and talk to a professional? Yeah, I mean, you know, I recognise that. I identify, as I explained in my story, the reason I got into the profession, how I got into the profession, was meeting somebody who didn't babble at me. Yeah. And make sense and was down to earth. And um, so that's the first rule is don't do it with somebody that makes you feel uncomfortable. Only do it with somebody that makes you feel comfortable. You know, that doesn't make you feel stupid and disempowered. Also, modern psychological therapies, and there's a range of them, are more about learning skills right? They're just not about lie down and tell me about your mum and dad. It's just yeah. not what we do anymore. And if somebody asks you to do that, get up and walk out, to be honest. Yeah. They don't know what they're doing. Um, so modern psychological therapies are really about what's going on for you right now, what's upsetting you right now. Here's a bunch of stuff that will definitely help you almost immediately. And if yeah. somebody you go and see can't do that with you, they're probably not worth seeing, to be honest. Mm. It's called evidence-based practice, and evidence-based practice is a really effective set of therapies. There's a whole bunch of what we call modalities, mm. CBT, EMDR, um, DBT. There's a whole bunch of spaghetti language stuff. Mm. Uh, but the person you see 
should be able to describe to you what it is they're offering, what the outcomes are and how long it takes. And they should be able to deal with your problems right here and now. And they should be able to give you more tools in your kit bag. And that's what it's about. If you then want to go on and do some of the lie down, tell me about your mum and dad stuff, that's up to you. But it's not necessary. What's necessary is to learn how better to cope with here and now. The reality is that mental health problems like drinking are progressive problems. They don't fix themselves. Mm. It only gets worse. So on balance of probabilities, if you're struggling at this point, the chances are it's going to get worse without intervention. So you might as well get intervention now before it's a crisis because the evidence is that for blokes, it will become a crisis and you'll end up in a dark place. So start now at the early warning signs. Improve your tools and resources for preventing something getting worse. Don't wait until the evidence is beyond a reasonable doubt, because beyond a reasonable doubt is you're in a really dark place. That's what I would say. Now, it's been a real pleasure and an education talking to you. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful for your time. Fantastic guest. And I will include links to your wonderful podcast and all your other stuff in the show notes with this episode. Uh, thank you ever so much for joining me on The Reset. Thanks for inviting me on. Have a great day. You too. That was Noel McDermott. Such a smart and inspirational bloke. You can find his show on YouTube. I'll post a link in the podcast notes. Thanks for listening to The Reset as always, gang. Remember to subscribe at samdelaney.substack.co. For £5 a month, you can get a ton of extra podcasts and content. Until next time, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.